Well, good evening, everyone. So happy to see you all here at the core this evening. And uh, happy to be able to share a message from God's word with you today as we continue our series, Skeptical Faith. And I wonder if we, if we I don't remember recall doing this, that we really defined what is a skeptic. Um, some people think that a skeptic is necessarily, it must be somebody who's not a Jesus follower. But the truth is that you can actually be a Jesus follower and still be a skeptic because I am. <laughs> um, when, I, when I was back in seminary, I, I didn't like to just listen to whatever my professors would tell me, like, oh, this, this is their opinion, this is, this is what they think, all right, I'll just write that down or memorize that. I would raise my hand, and I would often challenge it, and I would want to know, well, where in the Bible does it say that? And, well, I'm still not convinced. You got one more place? And, and, and then, then I would become convinced once I saw that this is what God's Word said. And I don't think I'm the only Christian who is a skeptic. In fact, I think one of Jesus' own disciples was a skeptic. We call him Doubting Thomas, but I think maybe he would be better called Skeptical Thomas because he didn't want to just listen to what other people thought and their opinions. He needed to see it or think it through for himself. And you see that in his personality, um, not just at the resurrection of Jesus where he doubted that maybe that really happened, but in other places as well. So if that's you, if you're a skeptic, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, this is the series for you because we are addressing the very difficult and challenging parts of the Bible where we're not sure uh, where, where people sometimes aren't sure what it really means and what you Christians really believe and well, what about this and what about that? And, and that's what we're addressing through this series. And today, tackling one of the very difficult questions in the Bible, and that is heaven and hell. And particularly, that teaching of hell makes some people stumble and they challenge us on that. A skeptic will challenge uh, Christians on that teaching of hell. So let's just dive in deep and let's see what God's word teaches and we're going to find some very comforting and real truths from God's word today. So one of the questions that a skeptic may raise is the first one that we have uh, in, our, in our program there, that when you die, you die, and there is nothing more. And that's what, that's what a lot of people today believe. This is actually uh, one of the rare times in history where a lot of people believe that, because for most of human history, everyone believed in an afterlife. And it's only in modern times that we've started to challenge that notion. And part of the reason people challenge this notion is because a belief in the afterlife is not scientific. And a lot of people have this, this mistaken notion that somehow we can only believe as true things that are scientific and that can be proven by science. But the honest truth is that there are many things that, that we believe, many things, many things that we know that we know not because of science. But I don't want to get too far into that because that's next week's final sermon message, religion and science. And Pastor Mike will get mad at me if I get too far into that. Um, but for now, know this, that, that there are ways you can know other things. For example, well, then how can we know about life after death? Truth is, science isn't going to help us with that because science does not deal with the supernatural. Science does not deal with things that cannot be observed or experimented on or tested. And that is true of life after death. So, well, how can we know? Well, one way we could know is to listen to all of the life after death, um, near-death experiences where people die, they, so to speak, come back, and then they say, oh, well, I saw this big light, this great light and this incredible warmth, and I, was, and I saw my, my grandma who was in heaven, and, and those sorts of things. Maybe you've heard those kinds of stories. And maybe you even wonder, okay, well, pa Pastor Michael, what about those? What do, you, what do you think? And my definitive response to those is, 
I'm not sure. I, I honestly don't know what to make of those. Uh, there sure are a lot of accounts, um, but I just, I just don't know what to make of it. I, I don't know if they're really seeing the afterlife or not. Finally, that's not what I base my belief in heaven and hell on. Um, maybe you heard the, story, the, the, the book or read the book, um, Heaven is for Real, came out a long time ago now, but uh, a father wrote it based on what his four-year-old son told him after his son had a near-death experience, and then he wrote this book. Well, maybe that happened, maybe, maybe it didn't, I'm not sure, I don't know. Um, but I do have a more reliable source than what a, a four-year-old saw when he had an out-of-body experience. The more reliable source, for what, and the reason that I believe that there is a heaven and a hell, is that it's what Jesus believed and taught. Again and again and again. Not just once, but multiple times. So the reason I believe Jesus, and this has come up in, in other messages in this series, is that you can always believe and trust a guy who can self-resurrect. So Jesus foretold on numerous occasions that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be condemned, that he was going to be put to death, and then on the third day he would rise again. He didn't just say it once, and he didn't say it in parable form. He just said it flat out multiple times, and then he did it. And it was proven, and it was witnessed, and there were hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw it. In fact, so many eyewitnesses that more than one skeptical lawyer who was not a Jesus follower decided, oh, I'm just going to give the Bible an objective chance. I'm going to read through it. I'm going to read the testimony as if it was testimony that was given in our modern court of law and just see how it holds up. And more than one skeptical lawyer who has applied the same principles to our modern day testimony said, those things happened. That stuff's true. It, it, it would be accepted in a court of law today, the testimony that you hear in those gospel accounts of, what, uh, of Jesus and, and his resurrection. Oh, so, okay, so since Jesus is God's own son who came down out of heaven and who testified about the truth of heaven and hell, I'm just going to go with what Jesus says. And that's the reason why I believe that there definitely is and afterlife. Jesus talked about it in numerous places. Somebody counted 60 passages where Jesus talks about hell and over, over 190 passages where Jesus talks about heaven. Let's take a look at just one of those places, though. In Luke chapter 16, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, just the, the first part of that parable where it says this. Uh, it's a parable of a rich man and poor Lazarus. There is a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who lived in luxury every day. Now, it doesn't say this quite yet, but as you read the whole context of the parable, this rich, rich man is all care, cares all about the, the pleasures of this world and thinks nothing about eternal life or God and, and is not a believer. Then we're introduced, introduced to the second character. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, so the, the poor man is a believer but has no good thing in this world. Okay, so there's the setting, but then what? The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, remember, Abraham had died 2,000 years earlier when Jesus told this parable. And, and Abraham, even though he had died, is alive. Obviously, he's in heaven. And now the beggar goes, and he is at Abraham's side in heaven. The rich man also died, and he was buried. 
In Hades, Hades is another term in the Bible for hell. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And with this parable and many more places like this, Jesus establishes the fact very clearly, heaven and hell are for real. They are for real. Now, when we hear that, that doesn't answer the skeptic's question yet. And usually it just, it just produces a new one that's a little harder to answer. Okay, let's just say, for the sake of argument, heaven and hell, and hell are both for real. Okay, so, so, so then I've got this question, and this is the skeptic question that comes next. So you see, if your God is like that and there is a place like hell, I can never believe in him. If your God is a God who will torture people forever in hell, that's a God I will never follow. And then they have some, sometimes there are different variants and, and angles on that. So you're saying that, that Christians, some of them don't live the best life even. I've seen some of them. If Christians go to heaven you, and you believe, right, that Hindus, even though they might be good, or Buddhists who live a really good life, or even some really nice atheists, and yes, there are some, that they're going to hell. Well, I'm sorry, that, that just doesn't fit with my way of thinking. That is a God that I cannot believe in. All right, so well, how do we answer that, that, that skeptic question? How do we deal with that? This is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on today, so let's, let's just kind of unpack this gradually. The first thing we need to figure out is what is the real essence of heaven and hell? Because I think a misunderstanding of heaven, but especially hell, a misunderstanding of what it is really about, what it is really like, what, is it, what it is in its essence, a misunderstanding about that leads to this misunderstanding about how there couldn't possibly be a hell if there is a loving God. So let's talk about the nature of both. Well, let's, let's start with heaven and talk about what is the real essence of of heaven. What I want to share with you is a number of Bible passages. If you want this list, they're not going to be up on screen. If you want me to email you this list, just shoot me an email and I'll send it off to you. But just take this list, just kind of digest it as I rapid read these verses, just kind of form a mental image of what is at the very essence and heart of what, it, what, what heaven is. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. You, you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Next verse, John 14, verse 2 and 3. Uh, Jesus speaking says, my, father, my father's house has many rooms. And then he goes on and says, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am, namely in my father's house, and that you may dwell where I am, is what Jesus is talking about there. Revelation 7, verse 15. 
They, that is believers who have died and they're in heaven, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Revelation 21 verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And then there's, there's all these verses in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, that depict, depict heaven as this wedding banquet. A wedding banquet the Father has for His Son, and we are invited to this banquet, eating with God in His presence. And that's what eternity looks like. So putting all these together, what is the real essence of heaven? And it is this. Living in the presence of God. The essence of heaven is living immediately in the presence of God. Okay, well then, well, what is the essence of hell? Now, before we even look at a passage, wouldn't it be logical that the essence of hell would be the opposite of the essence of heaven? And if that's what you're guessing, you would be right. So listen to the passages. Again, I'll just throw a bunch of them out there, try to grasp what it is that is at the heart and core of what hell is all about. Matthew 25, verse 41 says, depart from me. That's what Jesus says on the last day to the unbelievers. Depart from me. In Matthew 7, 23, he says, away from me. In Matthew 8, verse 12, they are thrown outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 says, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his majesty, the majesty of his power. Psalm 5, verse 5 says, the arrogant cannot stand in his presence. Luke 13, verse 28, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom and inferring, and you're not. You're outside of it. Uh, The next one, Hebrews 4, verse 3 says, they, that is those who do not believe, will never enter my rest. Luke 16, verse 26, a great chasm, this is the one we just read, a great chasm has been fixed between here and there that cannot be be crossed. So there is this, this divide, this separation. So that is the essence of hell. And if you want to write that in, um, heaven is living in the presence of God, but hell is, at its essence, exclusion from the presence of God. You are cut off from God. That is hell, how hell is ultimately described. Oh, well, what about all those other passages that describe hell as, as death or destruction or torture or pain? And of course, the one we usually think of when we think of hell, fire. Yes, those, those are in the Bible. But when you read those descriptions, what you almost always find is together with them is also that description of separation from God. Is there literally a fire in hell? Honestly, I'm not 100% sure. It might be metaphorical, it might be figurative. But if the fire of hell is literal, and it, there really is this fire burning, that's the easy part. So, so I want you to imagine exclusion from the presence of God. Something we can't do, something that never has happened to somebody on this earth. You know, sometimes people say, oh, my life is a living hell. No, it's not. Because you are still experiencing countless blessings from God. Even the abject atheist who denies God and rejects him totally enjoys countless blessings of God. 
um, warm sunshine, the food that God produces, uh, relationships and love, they're still here. But in heaven, or in hell, in hell they are not. So try to imagine this. This is, this is true. The essence of God is that he, and the only source of, of what I'm about to say is God. The only source of, of what is good and noble and right and true and excellent and beautiful and praiseworthy and, and peaceful and joyful and provision and plenty. The only source of all those things, the only source is God. And hell is being completely cut off from all of that. I can't imagine what that's like. And I I don't like to either because it's a scary thought. But this is how it's described in the Bible. So now you know the essence of what heaven is, living in the presence of God, the essence of what hell is, being cut off from the presence of God. And that's going to help us keep that definition in mind because that will help us now to answer the skeptic that says, well, how could God condemn people to an eternal hell? So because heaven and hell are for real, it has implications. It helps us understand something about God, and it also helps us through our daily lives, and we're going to talk about that next. So there are two things. We're going to talk about hell first. There are two things that because hell is real, two things that that we know about God that are super important. And if these two things, if, if hell is not real, then these two things aren't the case about God either, and we're going to see that that has huge implications into how we understand God. So Think of all of the teachings about God that are in the Bible. It's kind of like a a house of cards. And if you take out a few cards because you don't like them, it makes the whole thing collapse. If we take out the teaching on hell because it's just a little bit hard for us to explain or understand and we find it a little bit scary, so we'll just take that part out. Everything else we know about God crumbles as well. And I can can demonstrate that with just two points. The first one is this. Because hell is real, we know that God is ultimately... And God is completely just. God is just. And I want to propose to you that that is a good thing and it's also a scary thing. First of all, just kind of separate everything theological out of your mind for a second and just to the concept of justice. Justice is a good thing, don't you think? We live in a country that is by and large ruled by justice. I lived, used to live in a country when I was a missionary. I lived in Russia for 12 years, and there was not as much justice as there is here in America. In some cases, it was whoever could bribe the judge the most was going to win the court case. But we live in a country where there's usually not convicted murderers wandering the streets. That by and large, justice is served, and that's a good thing, and that's a blessing for us. Justice is good. It's also good that God is just. And sometimes you appreciate this, and sometimes you're terrified over it, But think about things in your life that have really gone wrong, especially times, for example, when somebody you really loved and trusted hurt you in a most profound and deep way. Didn't it make you angry? And then have you ever seen that sometimes when that happens, it seems like they get off scot-free and everything in their life just seems to be going well, where, where, where they've hurt you and your life is going poorly? And you say, hey, that's not right. That's not fair. That's not just. And God says, just wait. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not for you to get revenge on this person. Trust me, God says, there will be justice. 
On judgment day, one of the things I think we're going to do is breathe a great big sigh of relief because finally the tension that we're feeling in this world, because there is so much injustice, that tension will finally be released. And we will see, yes, God is just and things are finally set the way they're supposed to be. Thank God. God is just. Now, the problem, so to speak, with this idea that God is just is that it it scares us too. Because we know that that we're not perfect and, and that we should also really be on the receiving end of that justice. People would like to say in those circumstances, well, maybe God isn't completely just. And so some people would suggest, some skeptics would suggest, well, if God was really all loving, like you Christians claim, he would just take everybody to heaven. Which would mean that God isn't completely just. So what if he did that? Would that ultimately really be a good thing? You know what? God says, I'm just going to take everybody. Um, God, doesn't that mean that in your eternal presence forever and ever and ever, there's going to be some evil and some rebellion and some hurt and some pain and some sorrow and people hurting other people because there's going to be people who aren't perfect there and they're going to continue to do bad things. God, isn't that the case? And you say, oh yeah, I guess I hadn't thought of that. Um, He has, God is just. And so he doesn't say everyone goes to heaven because that would not be justice. So, That's where the tension comes with us because we know that we haven't been perfect. We know that we've had thoughts and words and actions that violate the will of God. We know that we've failed to show love at times when we should have shown love. And yet God is just. So let me tell you the second thing that the teaching, the truth about hell reveals to us. This one's going to, this one's going to be a total surprise. I don't think you know what to fill in this next blank. You know, usually you can kind of look ahead and you kind of guess what's coming up. I I, I bet you're not going to guess this one. Um, Because hell is real, God's love is extreme. Uh, Pastor, didn't you mean to put heaven on that one? No, (laughs) I meant to put hell. Because hell is real, God's love is extreme. So imagine that hell isn't real. There is no hell. And that God looked at your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world. And he said, you know what? I'm a loving God. Look at all that rebellion. Look at all that crime. Look at all that evil, all that wickedness. I think I'm going to take care of it. All right. Ooh, ah, there, it's gone. All right. Well, that was was nice. Everybody, you're all forgiven. You all get to go to heaven. There, that, that was done. Okay, now I can move on to something else. You see that if that's the case, if that's how God forgave all of our sins, that it would be ultimately relatively meaningless and that his love for us would be very questionable because it was so easy. Have you ever noticed that in your life, the longest and deepest relationships that you have require the most giving and the most sacrifice from you in order for them to continue? And if God up in heaven from a distance just says, ah, you're all forgiven, we would never know his love and we would always have to question it. It was easy love that took hardly a thought And therefore, his love could certainly not be described as extreme. But if hell is real, then we know that God's love must be extreme. Because I want you to imagine this tension within God. God is just. It's a part of who he is. He can't just stop being just because then he would stop being God. 
Um, It's like saying to the Pope to become Lutheran. Well, you can say that, and if he would do it, I mean, that would be nice, but then he'd stop being the Pope because that's kind of a prerequisite that he continue to be Catholic. Um, You could say to a Navy SEAL diver, that's awesome what you do. I honor you in your profession, but you will never go in the water again. And somehow you could enforce that. Well, you just removed the very essence of what it means to be a Navy SEAL diver, and he is no longer one of those. And you can't do that with God either and say, God, you just have to stop being just. Well, then God would stop being God because his fundamental asset or truth is that he is, he is, he is just. But a fundamental truth of God is also that he is loving. So there's this tension in the Godhead. And he's saying, I must punish them. They are wicked. They've done wrong. They are evil. They've rebelled. It's crime. Crime must, must be paid for. There must be punishment. And yet God says, but I'm loving. And I, and I oh, I love them. And I, I so want them to be forgiven. I so want them to be in my presence. But I can't let wickedness in my presence. But I want them to be in my presence. Ah, what am I going to do? Of course, God didn't experience tension like that. Because before God ever created the world, the Bible says, he had already found the solution to this tension. And the solution is the cross of Christ. The most costly, extreme love that you could possibly imagine. What is costly to God? He's the creator of all things. Nothing is costly to him. Well, except his son. His one and only son from eternity, son. So God said, well, let's see, 100,000 lambs? Nope, that wouldn't be enough to atone for their sins. That's not going to do it. What if I would just kill some in place of others? No, the some that, I would, that would die would be dying for their own sins. That still wouldn't set anybody free. What would set f- people free? Oh, wow, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost my son. What if I sent my son and he lived for them? And he took the punishment and the guilt of their sin. And he took the punishment that was due and died. That would do it. And the son said, I love the plan, Father. Sounds horrible. And I'll do it. Because I love them too. And so Jesus came and took on human flesh and lived in our world and obeyed the Father perfectly. And he went to the cross and there he bled and he died to pay for every last one of your sins. But you know what? He, he actually did more than bleeding and dying. He did more than that. He suffered hell on the cross. Do you remember what Jesus cried out when he was hanging there? At one point, when darkness had fallen, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, God's son, forsaken by his heavenly father. What is that definition of hell again? Exclusion from the presence of God. This is what Jesus suffered on the cross. Hell. The only proper payment for disobeying the holy, perfect creator of the universe. And he took full responsibility for all of your sins, took them upon himself, suffered hell in your place, so that the Father can say, There, now my justice has been satisfied. The payment has been made in full. Now I can take them to heaven. That is extreme love. And because hell is real, you know for a fact God's love for you is extreme. 
What about heaven? What's the big takeaway? What is the impact? What is the reality? Because heaven is for real. Let's take a look. There's two of those also. Because heaven is real, we have hope even as we live in a broken world. Let's be honest. This world sometimes stinks. There are bad things that happen. There, uh, people lose their jobs. Uh, I, I know how people in this very congregation are struggling. You get that diagnosis that you did not want to hear and it rocks your world and it's not looking good. Or somebody you know and love hurts you in a very deep way and, and relationships turn toxic and, and you're struggling because of that. Um, Sometimes the financial issues or that student loan debt that's weighing heavy on you. Um, or let's say there's a storm and a tree falls on your house or you have to be without electricity for several days in a row. Bad things happen in this broken world, right? But no matter what happens, you have hope because heaven is real. I had a grandfather who, whose favorite saying was, this too shall pass. Whatever he had to deal with, whatever problem came his way, this too shall pass because he knew and believed that heaven is for real. Therefore, we always have hope. There's always something better that we're looking forward to. So maybe you've heard this story. There was a pastor that went to uh, one of his members' house, an elderly woman who said, Pastor, I want to pre-plan my funeral. Could you please come here and let's, let's work out the details. So they're talking about what hymns or songs to sing and what, what scripture readings she wanted in her funeral. And she said, okay, Pastor, now there's one more detail. This is very important. Make sure that this happens. When I am laid in state and, I'm, and that people come for the visitation, before anybody arrives, you make sure, Pastor, that there is a fork placed in my hand. Um, excuse me, Edna, did I hear you correctly? Did you say a fork? He said, yes, pastor, just a regular old dinner fork. Put that in my hand, please. Okay, well, okay, you got to tell me the story. What's that all about? She said, okay, it's pretty, it's pretty simple, actually. You know how you go to somebody's house as a guest and they prepare this awesome meal and you eat that meal and it's so delicious and they start clearing all the, all the plates away, but they say, but keep your fork. And then you get a big smile on your face because you know the best is yet to come. Dessert is coming, Right. She said, that's what I want people to think of. When they see that fork, I want you to tell them the story that I believe that the best was yet to come and that I'm enjoying heaven. So this is the thing. Because heaven is for real, you do have this hope no matter what happens in this world. Second thing, because heaven is for real, we are unrestrained as we love others. We are unrestrained as we love others because heaven is for real. Sometimes people accuse Christians, you Christians, you're so heavenly minded talking about all these spiritual things that you are of no earthly good. But I would propose that actually the opposite is true. If only we would become more heavenly minded, we would become so much more earthly good. Because the more we focus on heaven, the more that the less we will focus on our earthly resources and pleasures and, and personal well-being. And the more we will pour ourselves out in love for others. This is exactly what happened in the early Christian church. There's an early church historian who lived around three, in the 300s AD, early 300s, um, whose name was Eusebius. And he reported what happened in this Roman town called Caesarea, a pretty big city for the time, where it just got hammered. First there was a war. After the war, there was a famine in the city. And then, to end it all, there was this big plague where lots of people in the city got sick, and the plague was a severe one, and they were dying. 
And people didn't know a lot about medicine back then, but they figured out pretty quickly, if you hang out with somebody with the plague, you get the plague and you might die. So to save their own lives, people abandoned their loved ones, abandoned their friends who were sick, and they headed for the countryside to get away from the sickness and death. Well, everybody except the Christians. So Eusebius reports this. Here's what happened. All day long, the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and they distributed bread to them all. Why would the Christians stay behind when everybody else fled the city? Because they believe that heaven is for real. What's the worst that could happen? I get the plague and I die. And then I go to heaven. And some of them did get the plague and some of them did die. And they went to heaven. Why could they pour themselves out so fully, so completely without restraint for the good of others? Why could they love so greatly? Because they knew that heaven is for real. And when you know the same, you can do the same. You don't need to hold back some reserves for yourself, stockpile your stuff for your pleasure, for your good. You don't need all that me time. You can dedicate everything, pour out everything in love for others when you know that heaven is for real. So because heaven and hell are real, God says that through Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, you are given the gift of eternal life. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Faith is simply this. God, you say that in Jesus, I have forgiveness, life, and salvation. I'm resting on that. And God says, everything Jesus did becomes yours. The unbeliever, in contrast, says, what God? You want me to live under you? You think that you get to call the shots in my life? You think that I'm going to obey you? Oh yeah, and supposedly you give me all these good things? Yeah, I don't need it. I can take care of myself. Thank you very much, but no, I refuse. On Judgment Day, essentially all God is doing is he's saying to the unbeliever with a broken heart, your will be done. I wooed you. I invited you. I poured out my life for you. I gave my son for you. I forgave all your sins. I offered all these things and you refused and you said no. So I will grant your wish and you will be free from me. And that exclusion from the presence of God is hell. And it's not good. If God would force everybody to go to heaven, many of whom do not want it, because they do not want to live in the presence of God, because they do not love him and they have rejected him. If God would force everybody into heaven, wouldn't he be a slave master? Isn't that what we call people who force others to serve them and obey them and live under them and they don't want to? We call that a slave master and that is not our father in heaven. So we're left with this. Heaven is for real. Hell is for real. And we're left with this final truth. Because life after death is real and because it's eternal, this one you might be able to guess, share 
Jesus. This is essentially what Jesus said at, that par- at the end of that parable of the rich man and poor Lazarus. He said, the, the rich man uh, addressing uh, Abraham in heaven says, okay, well then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. That's what the Bible was called in Jesus' day. It wasn't called the Bible. It was called Moses and the prophets, referring to the parts of the Old Testament. They already have the Bible. Let them listen to that. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the Bible, they're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So I don't, know, I don't know the mind of God, why he does things this way. He doesn't send angels from heaven to share this good news about Jesus. He doesn't send people back from the dead to share this good news about Jesus. He uses people just like you and me to go and tell the world that Jesus is the Savior, that he is God's son in human flesh who lived for us, took the full penalty and punishment of our sin, showed his extreme love, rose from the dead on the third day, And because of him, we are saved and we are right with God and our heavenly father smiles upon us and our father invites us into his eternal presence called heaven. Because this is real. God calls you to be his ambassadors, his messengers, to share this good news of Jesus with this world, to share his overflowing love to the people of this world. Let's do this because heaven and hell are real. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth that we learned today. It's it's tough, and at first glance, it's even a little bit offensive. But the truth is that when we know heaven and hell, and we know them well, then we know you a whole lot better, and your love for us just becomes that much more amazing and impressive to us. So, Lord, we know so many people. We know that that everybody, everybody we know is going to spend eternity somewhere. Lord, we pray that we might be your spokespersons, that we might be your hands and your feet to show love to this world, and that we might be your mouthpiece so that we can speak your truth to everybody that we know so that they might know you and be saved. Lord, thank you for making us a part of this amazing work of being able to change people's eternal destinies. Make us ready and willing and eager and to pour ourselves out for this incredible work, all to the glory of your name. Amen.